Good morning. I, I won't have any fancy bus fire graphics. Uh, probably? Probably, yeah. No, I've got confirmation. No fancy bus fire graphics for my sermon. But uh, if you would, turn to Exodus 23, and I'm going to open us in prayer. Father, you are good, and your mercy endures forever. And we come together this morning as a people hungering and thirsting for you. Hungering and thirsting for the things only you can provide. And so, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you would draw us each closer to you and to one another. That you would fill us with your love and your peace and your compassion. That you would embolden us where we need to be emboldened. That you would soften us where we need to be softened. That you would make each of us look more and more like your son, Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have been sitting on this sermon since October because when I went to a Wild at Heart retreat back in October, um, one of the speakers, I don't even recall who, mentioned two verses within this passage just in passing, and it just blew me up. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about the two verses, but... I've got to give you some context, because who likes a minute and a half long sermon? So we're going we're gonna to step up. Some of you are like, we would like a minute. Um, so we'll, we'll start at the beginning, but before we dive into Exodus 23, what gets us to Exodus 23? So we are getting close to, God is wrapping up the giving of the law and the, what's called the book of the covenant or the covenant rules to the people of Israel to get them ready to inherit the promised land. And we are about to see a series of military conquests conquests, as the the people of Israel move throughout the land of Canaan. And so this is already a people who have been delivered from Egyptian slavery and oppression, who have been led across the Red Sea, who have been led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar pillar of fire by night, who have been led to the foot of Mount Sinai, who have been given the law, this is a people who have been walking with God as a nation for decades. And yet even so, there is something unique that God is preparing them for. Something that requires chapters and chapters of promises from God to get them ready for. And warnings to make sure that they don't fall straight. Meaning, and up front, no matter how long we walk with God, God is always doing new things. And that we cannot merely rest on the patterns of thought and behavior that have served us in in the past. And as we read Exodus, it's really important. The things that we're going to read about, the promises, the experiences, are God's promises to his covenant people. And we can learn from them patterns of God's working throughout history. But we have to be careful not to take everything in the book of Exodus or Leviticus as a one-for-one correlation to today. We are not national Israel. We are not the people of Israel. We do not replace Israel. There are promises made to them. For instance, that their shoes would never wear out. Um, that I'd still have to buy shoes. Um, and I trust you do. If you don't, come talk to me. I pray. But the point being, we can learn, because of how God has interacted in patterns of history, lessons for ourselves. 
And so I'm going to be moving back and forth as we talk about this between what God was doing for Israel then and what I think that means for us now, what lessons we can learn. So we'll start in Exodus 23. And before we read through the scriptures, I want to give you a sense. So God has promised them this huge area. And the nation of Israel at this time is a very small people. It's a people who have been nomadic. They've been moving from place to place for decades. They're small, they're not well established, and they're about to enter a land that is full of multiple people groups, multiple walled cities, well-established, huge nations of people. And so what do you think Israel is feeling? Fear? What? Doubt? Anxiety? Left out? They, and God has promised them this land, and they look in the land, and there are huge groups of people who are all well-established, and God has promised them, and, and promises that we're going to get into, that he's going to deliver them. And yet, it's hard to see. It's hard to see. And so God is going to be reassuring them. They're going to be worried about where their food and water is going to come from. They're going to be worried about how they're going to develop the land. They're going to worry about how they're going to achieve these military conquests. And so what God leads with before taking them into that place are a series of promises, a series of principle that will guide their relationship with him, and a series of warnings. Because he knows that the place they're going into is a place that is fraught with danger, and it isn't primarily military danger. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. That's a great promise. I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversary. But the first question is, who is this angel that this passage is talking about? Because the word angel simply means messenger. And in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's used in a wide variety of ways. It can mean a human in certain circumstances who delivers a, a message, a word. It can mean what we what we've come to think of as angelic powers, created spiritual beings who operate at God's commands for the sake of blessing, for the sake of protection and war. What large numbers of Christian writers have read this angel to refer to as something far greater, notice that this is not just an angel, but my angel. And that in verse 22, if you obey his voice and do all that I speak. The speaking of the, the angel is brought together with the speaking of God himself. And multiple things in this passage, we between him and I, me and him. This has led many Christian writers to suppose that what this is referring to is the pre-incarnate Christ. That this is the eternal Son of God who is leading Israel into the promised land. Paul uh, brings Christ into this well. So this is not just some conjecture. Uh, we see that the rock for which water is provided, right? Paul says that's Christ. The rock is Christ. And so whether you view this as the pre-incarnate Son of God or whether you view it as an angel who's an extension of God's own power and authority, the point is God himself is leading the charge. 
And that can be scary. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions. We will see throughout this passage that God can rightly be described as a jealous God. He wants his people to stay in tight, close-knit relationship with him, and he will oppose anything that threatens that union. And he will treat it with the uttermost seriousness. We are, in this day and age, not used to thinking about jealousy in anything like positive terms. Because we've seen jealousy have two abuses. One, my jealousy is about my own insecurity and need to control. I'm afraid how things will go, and I'm afraid what this person is going to do. So I get jealous, and I control them. I, I attack them. I rein them in because of my own insecurity, my own self-doubt and anxiety. Our God is not jealous in this way. Our God is not insecure. He does not feel threatened. And the other, the other way in which we've seen jealousy is an over-response to very minor things. God's responses are not disproportionate. So what I suggest to you is that in a healthy, committed, exclusive covenant relationship, there are times at which a lack of jealousy is itself a problem. If, if a husband has a wife and that wife is cheating on him or engaging in certain deep emotional realities with someone else, the right response for a loving husband is jealousy. Now that jealousy could be, you could use that wrongly, right? You could live that out poorly. But there is a, a, an intense concern for the integrity and exclusivity of the relationship that is proper to people who are invested in one another, to covenant relationships. And this is the kind of covenant jealousy, safeguarding jealousy that the Lord is demonstrating here. That is, he isn't, he isn't the deistic God putting the clock and stepping back. He involves himself with everything he is for the good of his people. And he leads them out. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. So two points here. That the passage mentions six different people groups. And we could go into the differences between each of them and, and what, what the scriptures say and what secular history has learned. But the point being here is, he's saying, all the people in this area that you're going to encounter will lead you through each one, and you are to knock down all their altars and not leave any of them standing. Now, as you read through the conquests in Joshua, the little boy in me that just celebrated glorious battle and victory has been tempered by the man who realizes the, the disgust and in some cases the evil of bloodshed and war. And I think we would have to look very carefully at why the Lord directs these things. But notice that the instruction to Israel is to break down their sacred pillars. And what God is worried about as he's leading his people into this land is not military might 
but their hearts being drawn away from him. And so the first lesson for us here and now is life gets far more difficult for us when we forget that God is present and active on our behalf. These people who had never been in this area are being led into this area, and the most natural thing when we go to a new place and don't know what's up and what's down is to look around at those around us to figure out the right way to behave. They didn't have cities, they didn't have crops established, they didn't have sources of provision. And so the most natural thing, the human thing, is to look at what other people are doing and to mirror it. Well, this is working for them, it's going to work for us. And God's instructions here are, you cannot do that. And not merely that you cannot do that, but he knows that if these structures and patterns of thought and behavior and worship to false gods are allowed to stand, over time, what seems clear gets less clear. What started as black and white turns to gray. And it gets easier and easier to do the thing everyone else is doing. And that was true for the nation of Israel, and it's true for us here and now. There are still false gods that run rampant in our society. And these can be the false gods of other religions, but it can also be the false god of money, the false god of comfort, of security, of looking respectable, of prestige. There are things that, for the sake of making our way in the world, for the sake of providing for our families, that we can give pride of place instead of God. And when everyone around you is doing that, it gets shockingly difficult not to do the same. And so before God leads His people into this place, He warns them, do not bow down to their gods, do not serve them, nor do what they do, but overthrow them, completely break down their sacred pillars. You will need provision, but you cannot get it that way. And then he follows this up very quickly with a promise. So you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. He'll make sure you have plenty to eat and drink. And I will take sickness away from the midst of you. I'll make sure that you're not consumed by disaster or plague. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. You will be able to be fruitful and multiply. Life will abound. And I will fulfill the number of your days. The Lord leads with a promise. The things you need to do what I've called you to do, I will provide. Israel will forget this. Even before they make it into Canaan, they will forget this. And they will in, at times engage in war in their own ways rather than in God's ways, and they will commit atrocities in doing that. They will, they will struggle to get food in the ways that the nations will, instead of following God. We struggle with the same thing. I very naturally, when my, when my family has needs, the anxiety rises, and my response very often, and this is, this is sad, my very response is to feel anxiety and to want to work more. Because this is the thing that it seems like I need to do. We make horrifically bad choices when we feel like we are in the battles of life alone and that we have no greater source of support, no greater source of connection. When we feel desperate, we make bad choices. 
And the Lord is promising on the front end that it will never be so desperate that you will be alone. There will be things for you to do, and he enumerates all sorts of things. So it isn't that there aren't things for us to do. But there's doing them in the perspective in which he offers, the strength in which he offers, or there's doing them as if the entire world falls apart if I don't hold on. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the peoples to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. You are tiny and they will be running away. I'll send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. He's promising not merely to empower and give them incredible military strategy and might, but to go before them before they ever get there and to be preparing the way. And now we're getting to the part that I actually want to talk about. All of that is context. Verse 29. And this is the part that floored me and I had never seen before. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. We focus often when we think about Israel inheriting Cana on the military conquest. Victory after victory, win after win, expansion after expansion, and we get the sense that all of this happens in pretty straight order. And often I think we get the expectation in our spiritual lives that when we pray, Maybe I'll pray once or twice or three times. But if it doesn't have to after that, we conclude, oh, that isn't the thing God wants for me. Or we engage in, in spiritual warfare and we focus on victory after victory and when it doesn't come, ah, that must not be His will. And there are times in which that can be true. But the thing that this passage is teaching us is sometimes the deliverance doesn't, become, doesn't come quickly because we aren't ready to live in the place that deliverance would carve out. We aren't ready to inhabit it and to shepherd it and to husband it the right way. So the land in Canaan was really bad for growing crops. And so to have crops, they had to plant trees that would deep dive into water sources. How long do trees take to grow? Long time. Yeah, that's really the answer. Long time. If you had had a particular year, I would have said no because there's different types of trees. Trick question. They had to do terrace farming where they actually had to build terraces and work out water systems for irrigating the crops. All of that takes time. It takes effort. We don't read about very much of that in Joshua, and so we don't talk about it the vast majority of the effort that goes into Israel taking its promised land are found in the mundane things of life. They had to fulfill the Genesis mandate to be fruitful and multiply. I'll leave it to you to think through what is involved in that. There's lots of that going on. They're setting up cities. They're setting up uh, areas for crops, for livestock. And there have to be enough people to actually take care of these things or else who cares about the land? Because the wild beasts will take it over quite quickly. And so the, the lesson here 
is that very often one of the reasons we don't experience quick victory is we're not ready to live in the reality in which that creates. Spiritual warfare, glorious battle, whether that's flesh and blood or powers and principalities, is only one part of the story. It has perhaps dominated our attention. But the bigger part of the story are having families and raising them well, teaching people to follow Him, crops, livestock, filling the land. It could be like planting churches. It could be setting up small groups. But it takes an entire people to inhabit a land. It takes an entire people to establish a destiny. And the warriors are only one piece. And so there are times at which if we aren't experiencing victory in our lives in certain areas, we feel like God has promised it. Take a step back and look at what are the things necessary to live this out well. And I don't simply mean individually. I don't mean personal holiness, although that can absolutely be a piece that keeps us back. But the place that Israel was going, the place that God promised them, was a place that they could only get to together. The journey that Israel was on was a journey of a people, of a family, of a nation, of a community. However glorious individual destinies are, they don't get us to a promised land. Joshua did not get Israel to the promised land. God got his people there in and through the people. I love, and I had planned this sermon, this is my first opportunity to preach it, but I love the way things work out. Because the, the lectionary reading for today was Romans 12. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. We say this, and we talk about the body of Christ, and what we forget is that if we are each a part of the body, we each have a vital function to fulfill, and that the body suffers when we don't do it. We focus on the head that tells things what to do, or the hands that conduct war, or the feet that go places, and yet we miss all the other cells, all the other pieces of the body. And God reminds us here that until the entire body is ready to go, the best places, the places of peace and contentment are going to be beyond us. That battles will come, but they aren't the only thing. And the amount of time that Israel spent in battle pales in comparison to the amount of time and the number of people involved in planting, sowing, reaping, harvesting, livestock, making families. And that that is just as much a part of how we move into what God has promised as any spiritual warfare ever is. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the Sea Philista, and from the desert to the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. There will be things for you to do, but don't mistake that I am the one who does them. You shall make no covenant with them, 
nor with their gods. It will be easy to do. They'll be all around you. And when victory delays in your questioning, it will be really easy to think that I've left you and that you need to go another way, but don't do it. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And the sad history of Israel is that they would, in fact, at various times and in various ways, serve other gods. And it would go very poorly for them. And the amazing truth of our God is that He maintained His faithfulness. He never broke covenant. He never gave up. And as far as they ran away from Him, He called them back. And even these nations that He's commanding them to be dis- to be displaced. In Epiphany, we recognize that the entire point in which Israel was established was not to be, it wasn't Israel for Israel's sake, and it wasn't even merely Israel for God's sake, but it was Israel for the sake of the world. And so it gets hard when we read about battles and slaughter and question the ethics of that to miss the bigger picture that this was not the start of those people's stories, nor was it the end of them. But that God's purposes all along have been to form a community that is so radically in love with one another and with Him that blessing can flow to every corner of the globe. And so the message this morning is twofold. One, when you are swamped, by the cares of life, the stresses of life, the bills that you don't know how you're going to meet, the trucks that die inexplicably. And you notice that your first reaction is, I've got to work harder. How am I going to do this? Pause. Breathe. And remind yourself that God has not left you or abandoned you, that God is present and active on your behalf. Pray, read the scriptures, reach out to friends. Because very often you will not have the resources in you to assure yourself. And that is not because you are lacking something, it's because God designed us to need one another. You needing a word of inspiration, a word of help from a friend, is plan A. That is how God built us. Our society reinforces the idea that if I can't do it on my own, There's something intrinsically wrong with me, and it's a lie. And we will never flourish in the faith if we maintain agreement with that lie. And two, focus on where the body is headed and what you can do to be of service. Not everyone is a warrior. Not everyone is a preacher or a pastor. Not everyone puts up chairs. But everyone has a role. What are the terraces God is calling you to build for the sake, for His sake and the sake of His kingdom? What are the livestock that He's calling you to husband? What are the family, natural or supernatural, that He's calling you to plant and to nourish and to teach and to raise? These are the questions for us this morning. Let us pray.
God, our vision of reality is far too small. Our tendency is to focus on ourselves, the things we have and don't have. And we think that if I don't have it, it, it won't get done. If I don't do it, that we're going to fail. And Lord, when we get a call to further action, it just feels like one more burden, one more responsibility, one more expectation for us to have to sweat and worry and fret about. And so Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would ground us anew in your presence, your activity, your love, and your provision. Lord, we pray that we would be active where we need to be active, that you would take off the weight of responsibility, the lies about what we need to do, the false voices who draw us away from you and to other gods. Lord, that our chief concern would be doing the right thing in the right way, and that those would be defined in relationship with you and with one another. You have promised life. You promised provision. You promised protection. And Lord, in the heat of battle, we forget and we think the promises will never be fulfilled. And Lord, what you're showing us through the passage of Exodus is that our identity in you and our identity as a community is formed right at the edge of battle. That you clear out only what we need for the day. You provide what we need for the day, for the moment. And so, Lord, we pray that we would follow you everywhere we go, that we would attune our hearts to your angels, to your Son. We thank you that you've entrusted to us your Holy Spirit. Whether we like it or not, you have put us in intimate relationship with one another. We belong to one another. You have knit us together. And Lord, we cannot be in right relationship with you if we are not in right relationship with one another. Lord, reveal that to us. Help us to take seriously not just the responsibilities of that, but the blessings of it. The ways in which we can pull from one another strengths and talents and gifts. The ways in which we can lift one another up when someone is weak. Lord, you are forming a people who freely give and freely receive from you and from one another. Lead us into that. Show us the next steps. In Jesus' name, amen. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven.